to Genesis 20. If you stay at Genesis 20, I want to read you a passage from Matthew by way of introduction to the message. So you read, uh, you turn to Genesis 20, and I'll read briefly from Matthew 14, and I'll begin at verse 28. You know the passage in Matthew. It is uh, Peter walking on the water. Peter answered Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I suspect that uh, that's a passage that uh, resonates with all of us who are Christians. We understand what it's like to have the water closing over our heads as we walk our pilgrim journey in this life. We know at times that There have been occasions when our faith has failed and we have sunk beneath the stormy waters that in the providence of God have necessarily come our way. So you and I can relate to Peter and you and I can relate to Abraham. As I said, he's the great man of faith. And yet in the passage that we read, Genesis 20, it's an occasion where great men falter. And the great man of faith finds that his faith fails him. And the words of our Lord Jesus are applicable to him, even as they are to us. Jesus said in Luke, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Where is your faith, he says in Luke 8. This is a low point for Abraham. He has high points. This is is a low point. What has happened? Well, you know the, the context. It's the... The pleading with God, pleading with God that God might spare Sodom and Gomorrah, but God does not because, well, they had gone so far. And uh, Abraham moves on and he moves to an area called uh, Gerar. And there's a powerful king living in that region, and Abraham is afraid of him. And Abraham is so. intimidated by the power of Abimelech and so concerned about his own personal safety and that of Sarah that he decides what he needs to do is to lie and to tell Abimelech that Sarah is his sister. She's his half-sister, but uh, he uses that as an occasion to just lie and uh, in that way he thinks he will preserve his own safety and that of Sarah. God Uh, intervenes and speaks to Abimelech in a dream and warns Abimelech that he ought not to be doing this and gives him instruction as to how it might be set right. Abimelech, uh, troubled by this and troubled by what Abraham has done, calls Abraham and they get things sorted out. Abraham gives the lame excuse that she's his sister, and uh, but uh, that seems very weak. To close out the affair, Abimelech gives gifts to Abraham, and Abraham prays for Abimelech, and God brings the situation to a close. 
Now, we want to think about faith. We thought about faith this morning, especially faith. thought about humility and about kindness, but especially faith, and we want to focus more intensely upon faith tonight. And we want to think about the weakness of faith and then the object of faith, because if you want your faith to not be weak and if you want your faith to grow, you need to focus on the object of faith. That's how faith grows. And then lastly, we'll have some lessons for faith. So we begin with weakness of faith. So what happens when your faith is weak? What happens when you find that, you know, in life as a Christian, faith waxes and wanes, and when your faith is weak, what kinds of things happen? What kinds of things uh, do you do? What kinds of difficulties do you fall into? What kinds of traps do you find yourself caught in when faith is weak? I'm going to suggest several. First of all, we, we focus on the trouble. When your faith is weak, you focus on the trouble. There's a book I read many years ago uh, by a man named Ed Welsh. It's worth reading whenever you find a book by him. But that book in particular was called When People Are Big and God Is Small. That's what happens when your faith is weak. You see the trouble. Now, the people in that case are the troubling ones, and, and you tend to focus on the people you have blinders on, and all you can see is the trouble, and God is hidden. You just focus your attention on the trouble, and that's what happens when faith is small. That's what was happening with Abraham. All he saw was Abimelech. His horizon was filled with Abimelech, and because the horizon was filled with Abimelech, he, he blocked out God, and he saw Abimelech as bigger than God. God was small, and Abimelech was big, and that's what happens when when our faith is weak, and we see the waves like Peter, and we focus on the waves and all the trouble that they present to us, and we forget God, and the waves block out God. And so all Martha sees is the work she has to do. That's all she's occupied with. And she forgets that Jesus is who He is. You and I All we see is the trouble, whatever the trouble might be even tonight in your life. All we see is the trouble, and we forget everything else. All we see is the trouble that awaits us in the days to come, and it blocks everything else. And we forget that our God is sovereign, and we forget that our God is the God of all grace, and we forget that our God is Jehovah Jireh, always has been and always will be. We forget like Abraham. Abraham forgot. He's confronted with Abimelech. He's afraid of what Abimelech might do, and he forgets what God told him in Genesis 15. God said, fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Specifically says, don't be afraid. Remember who I am. Come to chapter 19 and 20, forgets who God is, and he's afraid. So we focus on the trouble. Secondly, we we exaggerate the problem. That's what happens when faith is weak. And when faith is small, we we see things as worse than they really are. We see things the way we see them in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, as you lay in your bed and you think about things and you ponder these matters, things seem much worse uh, in the dark. 
Sometimes with the light of day, uh, you have a whole new perspective. But uh, when faith is weak, it's as if you're in the dark and everything seems worse than it really is. Abraham thinks he's going to get killed. He's pretty sure that if he doesn't lie, uh, Abimelech's going to kill him. Well, he's exaggerated the problem, you see. We know from verse 5 that Abimelech was a much better man than Abraham thought him to be. He was a man of integrity, and he says to God, in my integrity, I have done this. He's a man of integrity, a better man than Abraham thought he would be. Why then have you done these things to me, these things that ought not to have been done, Abimelech says to Abraham. So Abraham has exaggerated the problem, not unlike the disciples would do later. Remember from Mark chapter 4 and verse 38, when they're on the Sea of Galilee and a storm arises and they say, Lord, we're going to perish. Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? We're going to die. We're going to get killed here. You see, they're exaggerating the problem. They weren't going to perish. They weren't going to perish in a boat where Jesus was. Who was there in the stern? Well, it was Jesus. You have the Son of God with you. Lord, teacher, don't you care? Of course he cares. Well, you see, they've exaggerated the problem and the difficulty. They've blown it up all out of proportion. They should have considered God. This is another thing we do then when faith is weak. Thirdly, and of course related to all of this, is the fact that we forget God. We forget God, and that's the great problem. That's the heart and soul of the problem of weak faith. God is not in the equation. We have not considered God in the matter. We have blocked God out of the situation. We're aware of things like a solar eclipse and a lunar eclipse, but this is, as it were, a divine eclipse. And so the matters that we're considering, the things that are stirring up fear and concern, they've blocked out God. They've blocked out the figure of God. And and we have not enough faith to see beyond than to see above and to see behind. Faith is so weak that we've forgotten God. Abraham forgot that God was powerful enough to protect him even from a powerful Abimelech. And he forgot that that God had promised to protect him. And he forgot that God is the kind of God who is faithful to his promises. And he forgot that God had promised that he would bless the nations through the seed of Abraham. God had promised all of these things. And he'd forgotten that God had promised and that God would fulfill And so Abraham's faith was nowhere to be seen in this situation. It's as if he didn't have faith, and it's as if God didn't exist. And that's why Jesus says, where is your faith? It's not to deny that there's faith there. Of course there's faith there. Of course Abraham has faith, and of course the disciples had faith. But where is it in this situation? It seems like it's outside the door. It's flown out the window. So where is it as regards this particular situation? We forget God. That's another thing we do then when faith is weak. Fourthly, we compromise principle. We compromise principle. 
When we don't see God, and when all we see is trouble, then as a result we think, well, I need to do whatever I have to do in order that I might survive, in order that I might get through and be able to go on. And what results then is that we often end up compromising biblical principle. We feel that the only thing left is to, uh, is to sin. So Abraham says, let me lie in order that I might protect myself and my wife. That's the only thing left to me. Let me commit sin in order that I, I might survive. And as we read this, we want to say, Abraham, don't you know that God hates lies? And you can read about that in Proverbs. Abraham, don't you know that God is the God of truth? And we read about that in Deuteronomy 32. And we want to say to Abraham, one day you'll learn that the spirit who lives within his people is the spirit of truth. And you know that the word of God is the word of truth because you know that you can trust every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he says, no, I, to preserve my life, I need to lie. Truth be told, it's better to lose your life than to sin against God. This man named Tertullian, what, third century? But uh, Tertullian was, uh, was speaking to a believer who was compromising in the matter of idolatry. You know, in those early centuries, it was very often the situation that Christians were put in positions where they, it was demanded of them that they, uh, that they offer sacrifice to idols, or their business might be destroyed, or their lives might be taken from them. And, and Tertullian runs across this believer who's compromising in the matter of idolatry, and he, and he rebukes this Christian. And the Christian's response is along this line. He says, well, he says, I, I must live. Reportedly, Tertullian's response was, must you? You see, he's saying... It's better to obey God than to live. Rather die than disobey God. We don't want to compromise biblical principle. It's a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a, well, he was a, a student of John's. He was ministered to by John. He knew John, interacted with John. And uh, Polycarp is, um, is arrested He's, at this time, he's 86 years old, and he's arrested, and, and uh, he's, he's told if you, if you compromise, and if, if you deny God, and, and turn your back on Christ, we'll let you go, and we'll let you live. And his response is, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? Rather than lie and say, well, I turn my back on Christ, I'd rather die. So we want to pray that God will help us so that our faith will not be so weak that we would, we would compromise biblical truth and bring dishonor on the name of God. And God keep us from this kind of weak faith that uh, moves us to to compromise in the face of pressure from the world. And then another thing that happens is we develop bad habits. 
We develop bad habits because our faith is weak. And this was, you see, a pattern with Abraham. You read in verse 13 that Abraham says, uh, when God had set them on a course where they were wandering from place to place, uh, he said to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Save me, he is my brother. So wherever we go and whenever we meet people, because you know there's danger everywhere, so every time uh, you got to lie. So this becomes a pattern. So weak faith then leads to a pattern of ungodliness. It leads to a lifestyle that compromises biblical principle. It leads to habits that, well, it doesn't seem so bad after a while, does it? And, uh, you know, I, I don't tell the truth about, uh, or uh, I live a life that uh, kind of self-absorbed, and, and so on and so forth. But I, I begin to live an increasingly secular lifestyle. But because my faith is weak, it just doesn't bother me anymore. And I get into the habit of this. And faith is weak. Godless patterns become acceptable and, and at times almost commendable. I'm not fanatical like the others. I'm mature and, well, sophisticated and a modern man. And then another thing we fall into when faith is weak, we blame God. And we blame God when we fail to see our sin and own up to it. And rather than and own up to it and acknowledge our own fault, well, the blame lies with God. You notice in verse 13 again, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Remember, God had said to him, you need to get up from here and go. Well, God caused the problem initially. God set him on this pattern of wandering in which he then had to do all he could to preserve his life, and that by lying. So really, if you think there's blame here, it's not my fault. Uh, ultimately, it belongs at the foot of the Almighty. Uh, there's a long history to this kind of thing. There's precedent for this kind of thing. Remember that the woman you gave me, gave me to eat. He has the audacity, does Adam, to say, well... It's not so much my fault. She gave it to me, and you gave her to, to me, and, well, we're, you know, work it out for yourself as to where the blame ultimately lies. And so we blame God when, in fact, the fault is ours. If God had been better, we might have been better. We blame the Lord. And then lastly, we become hypocritical. When faith is weak, we become Hypocritical. It is extraordinary, you know, that Abraham sees in the land of Gerar and amongst the people of Gerar and presumably the king himself, the same sin that is true of him. He says in verse 10, he looked at this area, I considered the situation, and I thought to myself, well, there's no fear of God in this place. The truth of the matter is that Abraham was the one who well, didn't have enough fear of God in his heart. If you just turn for a moment to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Isaiah 8, and we read there about the fear of God as opposed to the fear of men. Isaiah chapter 8, and verses 12 and 13. 
Uh, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And Proverbs says again and again that if you fear the Lord, you'll not fear men. But he was more afraid of what Abimelech might do than he was afraid of sinning against the Lord who had made him. And had he feared the Lord more profoundly, he would not have been afraid of what Abimelech might or might not have done. And what happens then is you... Abraham comes off sounding like a hypocrite. Imagine if he had at one point said to Abimelech, well, Abimelech, you should should fear the Lord. And Abimelech has a rejoinder, and he says, well, so ought you, Abraham, to fear the Lord. When faith is weak, witness becomes difficult. When faith is weak, witness becomes embarrassing. And and when faith is weak, witness can often be very, very awkward. Imagine you're in, um, imagine it's Friday and you're, you're at the grocery store and some inept cashier, he or she has done something just horrific and robbed you of, what, $2.73, just miscalculated and done something dreadful, and you've just proceeded to tear a strip off this person publicly, and it's degenerated into quite a scene. Well, you know, uh, you just let off steam and you move on and you come to Sunday and you happen to see that same person at church and begin to speak to them about Oh, about grace and about forgiveness and about Christ and about the cross and about love and about the mercy of God. And oh, you show yourself to be a hypocrite. Hypocrites have trouble witnessing, don't they? Don't we sometimes have trouble witnessing because of weak faith? Well, you know, I could go on and on about, uh, about this, but I think we understand. I think we recognize ourselves. I think it's like looking in a mirror. We, we understand what it's like to have weak faith. Abraham, well, we understand him. And the disciples, or uh, I live a life that uh, kind of self-absorbed, and, and so on and so forth. But I, I begin to live an increasingly secular lifestyle. But because my faith is weak, it just doesn't bother me anymore. And I get into the habit of this. Faith is weak. Godless patterns become acceptable and, and at times almost commendable. I'm not fanatical like the others. I'm mature and, well, sophisticated and a modern man. And then another thing we fall into when faith is weak, we blame God. We blame God when we fail to see our sin and own up to it and rather than and own up to it and acknowledge our own fault, well, the blame lies with God. You notice in verse 13 again, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Remember, God had said to him, you need to get up from here and go. Well, God caused the problem initially. God set him on this pattern of wandering in which he then had to do all he could to preserve his life, and that by lying. So really, if you think there's blame here, 
It's not my fault. Uh, ultimately, it belongs at the foot of the Almighty. Uh, there's a long history to this kind of thing. There's precedent for this kind of thing. Remember that the woman you gave me gave me to eat. He has the audacity, does Adam, to say, well, it's not so much my fault. She gave it to me, and you gave her to, to me, and, well, we're, you know, work it out for yourself as to where the blame ultimately lies. And so we blame God when, in fact, the fault is ours. If God had been better, we might have been better. We blame the Lord. And then lastly, we become hypocritical. When faith is weak, we become hypocritical. It is extraordinary, you know, that Abraham sees in the land of Gerar and amongst the people of Gerar and presumably the king himself, the same sin that is true of him. He says in verse 10, he looked at this area, I considered the situation, and I thought to myself, well, there's no fear of God in this place. The truth of the matter is that Abraham was the one who, well, didn't have enough fear of God in his heart. If you just turn for a moment to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Isaiah 8, and we read there about the fear of God as opposed to the fear of men. Isaiah chapter 8, and verses 12 and 13. Uh, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And Proverbs says again and again that if you fear the Lord, you'll not fear men. But he was more afraid of what Abimelech might do than he was afraid of sinning against the Lord who had made him. And had he feared the Lord more profoundly, he would not have been afraid of what Abimelech might or might not have done. And what happens then is you, Abraham, comes off sounding like a hypocrite. Imagine if he had at one point said to Abimelech, well, Abimelech, you should, you should fear the Lord. And Abimelech has a rejoinder, and he says, well... So ought you, Abraham, to fear the Lord. When faith is weak, a witness becomes difficult. When faith is weak, witness becomes embarrassing. And, and when faith is weak, witness can often be very, very awkward. Imagine you're in, um, imagine it's Friday and you're, you're at the grocery store and some inept cashier he or she has done something just horrific and robbed you of, what, $2.73, just miscalculated and done something dreadful, and you've just proceeded to tear a strip off this person publicly, and it's degenerated into quite a scene. Well, you know, uh, you just let off steam and you move on and you come to Sunday and you happen to see that same person at church and begin to speak to them about, oh, about grace and about forgiveness and about Christ and about the cross and about love and about the mercy of God. And 
You show yourself to be a hypocrite. Hypocrites have trouble witnessing, don't they? Don't we sometimes have trouble witnessing because of weak faith? Well, you know, I could go on and on about, uh, about this, but I think we understand. I think we recognize ourselves. I think it's like looking in a mirror. We, we understand what it's like to have weak faith. Abraham, well, we understand him. And the disciples, them, we, we find that their struggles resonate with us. And we want to pray then earnestly and sincerely, Lord, increase our faith. But we want to move on to the object of faith because we don't want to just walk out of here uh, tails between our legs and lamenting the fact that you know, we're, we're weak in faith very often. No, the, the answer to weak faith is to look at God. The answer to weak faith is to ponder the Lord. And if we want to strengthen our faith, we want to gaze long and hard at the Lord. And when you, uh, when you look at God and when you remember Him, who He is and who He is to you and what kind of relationship He sustains with you, what kind of great God He is, well, then your faith will be strengthened. So what kind of God is it that Abraham served and you serve? What kind of God is it who is set before us here in this passage and in the Holy Scriptures? Well, first of all, he's a God of sovereign control. He's a God of sovereign control. So go and ask Abraham now. In chapter 20, Abraham, who's in control in this situation? Who's in control here? Who's making sure that uh, that what happens unfolds properly? Well, is it you, Abraham? Because, I mean, you seem to be orchestrating this. You understand the problem. You've come up with a solution. It's to lie and uh, deceive, and uh, that will result in uh, the desired safety. Well, are you in control? Well, obviously he's not. Is it Abimelech that's in control? Well, Abimelech's sick, and uh, he finds himself troubled as well. So Abimelech's not in control, and clearly it's God. Clearly, in this situation where you have the great Abraham and a great king, well, it's God who's in control, and it's God who's bringing things to pass. It's God who prevents Abimelech uh, from uh, from sinning. You read verse 6, and God says, I stopped you. I stopped you from touching this woman. Does God have that kind of control? I mean, people in the world doing all kinds of things... Can God stop them? Well, of course he can stop them. He stopped Abimelech. He was totally in control there. In verse 17, it was probably God who made him sick and God who was going to make him well. He can make kings sick. He can make prime ministers sick. He can kill presidents. God's in control. He prevents Abimelech from sinning in this particular area. And so when leaders in the world today do sin in a particular way. It's not that it's out of God's control. That's ultimately, in mysterious ways, part of God's plan. What's more, God invades the mind. You see verse 3. He speaks to Abimelech in a dream. He speaks to Abimelech in his mind. The minds of men are not beyond the control of God and beyond the pale of His sovereignty. God can speak to these people And he can uh, do that which is beyond uh, what we can do. He protects Sarah. Abraham 
thought he could protect Sarah, but he cannot. We think we can protect oh, our loved ones and our children and our grandchildren. We think we can protect them. We think we can keep them from harm and, and make sure their pathway is safe. But you find, before you go a very long way down the Christian road, that you cannot. We have an exalted opinion of the... You know, we talk about control freaks. And I suppose all of us, to some degree, uh, are like that. But you find very quickly you have much less control than you thought you did. In fact, ultimately, we have none. God's the one. God protects Sarah, not Abraham. God has rule over the body. God makes them sick. We also find from verse 18 that God opens and closes the womb. So God is a God who is a God of sovereign control. He's a God, then, that you can trust. There's nothing in your life that's beyond the control of God. Abraham's safety and the safety of his wife, not beyond the control of the sovereign God. He can work all things after the counsel of his will, and he'll work all things for the good of his people. Listen to Spurgeon. Spurgeon on the sovereignty of God. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. I've got a bit more here to read, but just sit back and think about that. Just a particle of dust doesn't move without God say so. I've had allergies the last little while, and boy, it's just frustrating. I have... I've said to you recently, I just have no patience. I've got no patience for allergies. just annoys me to no end. And I think, well, now, why? I've got to preach today. Come on. Then I, then I read this this afternoon, and I thought, oh, okay. I guess I suppose I should submit graciously to this because I believe that every particle of that, whatever is bothering me, Every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in, its, in the heavens. That the chaff in the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars uh, in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. There is no attribute more comforting to God's children than His sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all his works, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we love to trust. So our God is sovereign. He's the God of sovereign control. And so we should trust him. And he's worthy of that trust because he has absolute control. Then also he's the God of sovereign grace. And I mean by that that he's gracious with poor sinners. 
He's not only all-powerful, so we can commit any situation to Him, but He's He's the God of all grace. And so no matter our weakness, He's gracious to us. It's humiliating to see how small your faith is. You know, when the thing happened with Trinity, I was, how old was I, 63 or something like that? And you know, through all of that, the biggest lesson I learned was you should be a man of faith. You should have stronger faith. That's humiliating for a man of 63 who's walked with the Lord for donkey's years. You You should walk by faith, Carl. Well, that's humiliating. And deservedly. <laughs> you see, uh, the Lord's still a God of grace, isn't he? He understands our weakness. He knows that we're but dust. Yeah, I know you're 60-odd. I know you study the Bible every day. But I know how weak you are. God's very gracious. And so how does he deal with Abraham here? Well, he, he helps Abraham. Could have said, Abraham, well, that's quite a mess you've got yourself into because you lied. Let's see how you fix it now. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He helps Abraham. God's very gracious. And we oft, very often, we, you and I, we make our own beds, don't we? And we deserve to lie in them for some time. But, but God's very gracious and he takes steps to help us, to extricate us from the mess we have put ourselves in. The Lord helps us. And then he calls Abraham a prophet. Verse 7, he calls Abraham a prophet. Abraham's a prophet. Well, Abraham's a bit of a liar here, to truth be told. But he calls him a prophet. What does a prophet do? prophet speaks the truth. That's gracious, you know, for God to say, well, this... This liar, because he lied to you, Abimelech, uh, he's, he's a prophet. He speaks my truth. Well, I'm saying to you that that's a gracious God. He answers Abraham's prayer. Verse 17, Abraham prays for Abimelech. What that presupposes is a relationship of grace with God, a relationship that by grace he sustains with the living God so that he can pray and God will answer. That's the kind of relationship you and I sustain with God. We pray and he answers. He stirs prayer and we pray those prayers and he answers those prayers because we have that kind of relationship because as the Lord Jesus says, you call him Father. You come to him and you say, Father, hear our prayers. And you pray in my name. When you pray, you ask for these things and you do so in my name. You have that kind of relationship with God. Yes, you're weak in faith, and yes, you fall sometimes so very grievously, but you know, God is gracious, and, and he answers our prayers. And then you notice, he doesn't even rebuke Abraham. <laughs> There's no rebuke here. He speaks more harshly with Abimelech than he does with Abraham. And in truth, Abraham deserves a rebuke. I might have rebuked him. And I'm not as gracious as our Father. The Lord is so good and so kind and so gracious and so merciful to His erring children. Thank God the Lord is gracious in that way with us. 
He's a sovereign God, sovereign power, and He's sovereign and gracious as well. And then thirdly, He's a God of sovereign faithfulness, God of sovereign power and sovereign grace and and sovereign faithfulness. Throughout the chapter, uh, the name of God that's used is the, the name Elohim. That's a general word for God. And then in verse 18, get to verse 18, and then you find a different name for God. And you'll notice in verse 18 it says, Then the Lord, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah and Abraham's, Sarah Abraham's wife. Before that, he's called God. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and so on and so forth through the chapters. It's that general word. But then, as if it rises to a crescendo, as if to make it stand out, who's this God now who, in the midst of Abraham's foolishness, has nonetheless protected him and guarded him and been gracious to him? Who is this God? Well, he's Yahweh. He's the the covenant-keeping God. He's the, the faithful God of the covenant. That's who he is, and he's revealed himself with this great name, Yahweh. I am that I am. That's his, his name that he gives to his people. He's a God of sovereign faithfulness, so he makes promises to his people, and he'll keep those promises. He's the faithful, covenant-keeping God. So important now. Now, you'll notice that, that chapter 20... Where does chapter 20 come in Genesis? Well, Genesis 20 comes just before, you will perhaps have noticed this, it's incontestable, comes just before chapter 21. And what happens in chapter 21? Well, the birth of Isaac. Wow, that's really important. You see, Abraham and Sarah, they have to survive chapter 20. They have to get out of chapter 20. They can't can't die in chapter 19 because they have to get to chapter 20 where they're going to have a baby. That has to happen. Why does it have to happen? Well, because God said it would. And so the God who promised Abraham and Sarah, although she kind of wavered and she laughed, she laughed a laugh of, I can't see this happening. She laughed and he wavered a little bit, but ultimately he didn't waver. God said, you're going to have a child. Abraham hoped against hope and believed. But God promised that they would. So they can't die in chapter 19. They can't die in chapter 20. They have to get to chapter 21. And God saw to it. Why is that? Because God's a covenant-keeping God. And they have to survive chapter 20 and get to chapter 21 because they have to have Isaac. And they have to have Isaac so that they can have all the rest. This multitude that will fill the earth. And they have to have the seed of Abraham, the ultimate seed, that one seed that in the fullness of time would come, and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, including you and me. So you see... God has to look after them in chapter 20 because he's going to save us in the 21st century or the 20th century. Everything depends on this. 
And he's thankfully the covenant-keeping God. So when he says, I'll bless all nations through the seed of Abraham, he will do it. So chapter 20 is not just about God saving their necks. It's not just about God uh, protecting Abraham and Sarah. It's not just about God uh, making sure that uh, Sarah doesn't get violated and and Abraham gets back on the straight and narrow. It's not just about that. It's, It's about that, but it's bigger than that, much bigger than that. It's about the great plan of God and the glorious purpose of God in which you and I are included and which involves a multitude that no man can number who will be saved, men and women from every tongue and tribe and kindred and nation, through the blood of Christ, the seed of Abraham. This is the kind of God we have. You see, a a God of sovereign power and sovereign grace and sovereign faithfulness. Who in their right mind would not trust that God? Well, now, some lessons of faith. Some lessons of faith. There are many lessons that we can draw from this chapter. We're only going to focus on one, but I'm going to give you just a list of a few lessons that we could learn. We could learn that the best of men are men at best. That, um, that phrase has been attributed to many, not least John Charles Ryle. But the best of men are men at best. Abraham lacked faith. Abraham, of all men, lacked faith. Jonah lacked love. We heard about that from Roger. Peter lacked courage, and he denied Christ. Elijah lacked perspective. I, only I, am left. No, there's more to it, Elijah. The best of men are men at best. Sin affects others. We can learn that. Sin affects others. We don't sin in isolation. When you sin, you affect other people. You think you sin and nobody knows or sees, but ultimately, you affect other people. Your sin can affect the church. It can quench the spirit. It can hinder the work of God in our midst. So we don't sin in isolation. We can also learn that crisis reveals the heart. Here's a crisis, and Abraham is faced with a crisis. And what's revealed is that, well, he's lacking in faith. That's what bubbles to the surface. A.W. Pink said, we can never know what is in our hearts until circumstances arise to draw it out. It's like the bucket, you know. How do you know what's in the bucket? Well, jostle it a bit, and you know what's in it spills out. Is it clean water or dirty water? Hmm. Now you know. We learn that God is able to use sinful servants. Abraham, well, he's the father of the faith. He's a great man, but he's a sinful man. Needed to be saved by grace through faith, like all the rest of us. But God used him. And God used him in extraordinary ways. He's a massive figure in the Bible. God is able to use sinful people. He can use you. He can use me. And then God is glorified. Even through Abraham's difficulty here and his failure, even through this, we see that God ultimately is glorified and God's faithfulness and power and grace is manifested in this chapter. And lastly, we could learn that, uh, that Christ is perfect. When Christ is brought into a crisis, when you see Christ at the cross, what happens? Does he do anything wrong? Does he lack faith? No, the Lord Jesus, even on the cross, is an example of faith. And he, he entrusts himself to his Father. And so on the cross, you see the grace of God 
manifested, all the perfections of Christ shining so brightly, even on the cross, even at that moment of testing. So we can learn so many things, but we won't take time for that. One lesson, the just shall live by faith. That's a great, important phrase in the Bible. I read about it in Habakkuk last week, but it's found not only in Habakkuk, but also in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. Key phrase and a fundamental concept, the just shall live by faith. So two lessons about this. One is, if you're going to be saved, you're saved by faith, saved by grace through faith. You're saved not through your works, but by simply believing and trusting Christ. So Abraham wasn't saved by works. You can read Romans 4, and it's demonstrated there in no uncertain terms. Paul in chapter 3 of Romans is saying, you're saved by grace through faith and not of works. And then he says, I'll give you two examples, Abraham and David. And he goes on to explain that in chapter 4. Well, Abraham was saved by faith, trusting in God. He saw Jesus' day and rejoiced in it. The Lord Jesus said that. He saw my day and rejoiced. He was looking forward to the coming of a Savior. He trusted in that Savior. You read uh, Genesis 22 and read about how that's exactly what happened. God shows himself to be Jehovah Jireh. You don't have to kill your son Isaac. I will send my son to the cross to save you. So Abraham was saved not by works. If he had to be saved by works, he would have gone to hell. You're saved by grace through faith, just the way you and I are. So that's the first thing. If you're going to be saved, it must be by faith. It must be by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, if you're going to live, it must be by faith. If you're going to live, it must be by faith. We need to, you and I, Abraham and and all of the faithful, we need to walk by faith through this life and, and face every aspect of life by faith. Don't walk by sight, says Paul. Walk by faith. So, for instance, we think about about money. Let's think about money. We see that with the eyes of faith. We deal with money uh, by faith. We don't trust in money. We know from the Bible that money, well, It takes wings, doesn't it? It flies away, and you think you have an awful lot, and it just flies away, and it's gone. You think money can do so much for you, but then you find that it can't. And you throw boatloads of money at something, and it doesn't solve the problem. And so, no, we we think of this whole matter of money with the eyes of faith. We need money. Well, we, we call upon the Lord. George Mueller talks about the fact that his orphans need thousands and thousands of pounds, and, and it always came. Well, we prayed, he said. We looked to the Lord. We dealt with this matter of money with faith. And so ought we. We all face the issue of money in, in all kinds of different ways. How do you cope with it? How do you deal with it? Well, as a believing man or woman, as a man or woman of faith. What about health? People say, well, if you have your health, you have everything. That's nonsense. All down through the years and centuries, Christians have battled with terrible health. John Calvin had a list of ailments that would just make your toes curl. Just terrible problems. But how God used him, he walked by faith. 
His, his hope and, and his joy wasn't pinned on health. Now, thank, if you have great health, thank God. It's a gift from the Lord. But we deal with this whole matter by faith. If we don't understand why we're suffering as we're suffering, well, we trust the Lord, don't we? Some people suffer far in excess of others. And we wonder, well, now, why is it, Lord, that, that they're suffering as they do with, with all of these ailments? And I, I'm mean, just in the pink. Why is that? I don't understand this. Well, they walk by faith, don't they? They, they trust the Lord, that the Lord knows. He has, he has reasons, and he's got wisdom behind all of these orchestrations that he's brought to bear upon our lives. And so we, we deal with this whole matter by faith. You see, we're, we're walking by faith through all of these different areas of life. What about the past? The past. Maybe you look at the past, you think, oh, oh, I wish I'd done this and that and the other. Have I done enough? Have I wasted things? Have I wasted time? Have I wasted my opportunities? Have I wasted my talents? Have I... Oh, you can have moments and you can have days of regret, can't you? But ultimately, you, even that, even that, you look at it with faith and trust the Lord. Well, I've done, you know, I've, I've run the race as best I could. I fought the fight as best I could. And so I look at that by faith. What about children? You know, the Lord gives you children. And the Lord gives you maybe grandchildren. And you think to yourself, well, now, have I done my best? Have I done what I ought to have done? What's going to happen? What's going to become of them? How are they going to face things? I see things going from bad to worse in life. And how are they going to deal with it? How, how are they going to respond? What about my grandchildren? Because things are as bad as they are now. What about when? And so on and so forth. How do you deal with that? Well, it's the same thing. You, you commit them to the Lord by faith. You, you just you trust the Lord. You deal with these things as a man of faith would. I mean, you can't control that. You can't, you can't exercise control over their destinies. You're utterly helpless. But it's a real concern. So what do you do? Well, you commit them to God by faith. You say, Lord, I just... It's like Paul in Ephesians 20 when he says, he realizes, oh, these Ephesians, the elders and the people, he says, I love these people, but I don't think I'm going to see them again in this life. What's going to happen to them? All kinds of wolves are going to arise. You read about that in Acts 20. You know what he says? He says, I commend you to, to God and to the word of his grace. He deals with that by faith as he stands there at that port about to get into the boat, never to see them again. Tears streaming down all of their faces. How does he deal with it? Well, he commends them to God. It's a, it's a walk of faith. It's a life of faith. What about, um, what about the fruit? The fruit of your life. The fruit of your labors. When you come to the end of your life. What will it count for? You know, there was a man by the name of Thomas Paine, a revolutionary character, American Revolution, writer and, and a patriot. And, uh, but it was interesting to, to read for me that the New, York, um, the New York Citizen, a newspaper at the time, writes an obituary of Thomas Paine when he died. And one of the lines was this. He lived long did some good and much harm. I thought to myself, good grief. <laughs> Would you want that written of you? 
Well, he lived a long time, and he it's so good. And a lot of harm. How dreadful. Well, you know, Paul says, let us not grow weary in well-doing. Just keep going, for in due time we shall reap a harvest. You just keep working. Just walk by faith. You just keep pressing on, doing your best and doing your job and serving as best you can. Just keep walking by faith and don't worry about the results. In due time, at the end, not now, you want to sow and reap in the same day. Can't be done. So just keep working, press on, walk by faith, and at the end, leave it with the Lord. The results are his business. The fruit, that's his business. You know, I always tell these young pastors, they, they, want, to, they want to preach. You know, they start out, they want to preach. And then they want, like before they hit the door, they want people telling them, that was fantastic. These seven people got converted. We Christians, we've been revived. They, they want results just like that, you know. And they want to know about it. They don't, don't want it to just happen. They want to know about it. And the reason they're like that is because that's how we all are. You know, I always try to tell them, walk by faith. You just sow the seeds and leave it with the Lord. You just do your job and leave the results. Leave the fruit with, with the Lord. So it's the same for all of us. We're all sowing seeds. We're all trying to work. We're all trying to be witnesses. We're all trying to influence the Christians and the saints and be a blessing to Christians in our church and in other churches. We want to shine our light in the community, in our family. We're all, we're all working, you and I. So where are the results that we want? Well, you know, you may not see much. But in due time, reap a harvest. So keep walking by faith. Just trust the Lord. Serve him well. And leave it all in his hands. Be men and women of faith. Let's pray. The gracious God and Father, we're thankful to you for the privilege of knowing you and trusting you. Make us, we pray, men and women of great faith, that we might serve you well and bring honor to your name by being a blessing to the church and a light to the world. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we'll close.